Hello. We would like to welcome you to another episode of Reading Across the Curriculum, a book talk series on our Changemaker Conversations in Education podcast channel of the Alberta Regional Professional Development Consortia, or ARPDC. We focus on providing educators in English language arts, K-12, and across the curriculum with information, books, and resources through conversation with outstanding educators, authors, and library and book talk souls to support our work with students. As always, we welcome your suggestions for guests on our podcast. You can email us at rick.gilson at arpdc.ab.ca. I am Rick Gilson, Director of the Southern Office of ARPDC. My co-host in this series is Charlie Craig of both the Central and Northeastern Offices of ARPDC. And our guest, who Charlie will introduce in just a minute today, is doctoral candidate Trevor Aleo. Um, just before we get to Trevor, I do want to take a minute to acknowledge that we are coming to you from Alberta. Trevor currently, I think, is over on the Far East Coast. But regardless, we are both all citizens of North America. And long before we were in North America, the indigenous peoples of these lands walked the land, learned from the land, and developed deep and rich cultural practices. And we want to acknowledge the settlers to this land that here in Alberta, Charlie and I, Treaty 7 and Treaty 6 and 7, Charlie lives right on the border of the two treaties here in Alberta. And uh, I wanted to share with folks today that there's a, a beautiful um, YouTube broadcast called Against the Current, a short documentary about the culture of Indigenous people. And it's put together by a group called By Kids, as in B-Y-K-I-D-S. And By Kids, and we're going to speak a lot about multimodal work today, is a group of real-world films for kids, by kids, where talented young storytellers from around the world are paired with seasoned filmmakers to create powerful documentaries about their lives. This is great work, but this particular episode features a Native American teen activist who shares her family's journey to retain the sacred rituals and values of their culture in the wake of centuries of loss due to disease, war, and government policies. And we need to recognize that the and honor the wisdom that is in the cultures that preceded us that allow us to learn from the land we walk as well. So with that, I want to turn it over to Charlie, who will introduce our guest today. Charlie. Well, we are very excited today to welcome Trevor Alio to our podcast. This is going out on the very first podcast of uh, the new year. So Trevor knows the, the pressure that he is carrying as a <laughs> podcast guest. Um, Trevor teaches high school English, designs professional learning experiences for teachers, and researches the intersection of disciplinary literacies and multimodality. He's the co-author of Learning That Transfers, Designing Curriculum for a Changing World, and a doctoral student at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. He also hosts Conceptually Speaking, a podcast with the goal of helping educators and students become better sense makers, innovators, and designers of meaning. He's all around an awesome human. I've never actually met him in person, but we've met each other That's on enough true. Zoom calls. It that counts, like I think. Virtual friends, <laughs> right, Trevor? Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, welcome. I, <laughs> Go ahead, Rick. I've actually, I've actually hugged it out with Trevor at the National just, uh, Conference yeah. of Teachers of English. Got to get time. you down there, Charlie. Next time. I don't know if my credit card could handle an experience like that. I just see people buying books and, uh, you know, I have enough trouble in this comfort of my basement with the volume of book buying that I do. So we'll see, maybe that'll be like a one day bucket list thing. Um, we always start with an easy question. We hope it's an easy question. Uh, what are you currently reading personally, professionally, all of the above? Yeah. So, um, two books that I, um, one, I just finished reading and one I'm in the midst of reading. So professionally I've been reading, um, Shauna, Coppola's uh, Literacy for All, a framework for anti-oppressive teaching that just came out. Um, and a lot of the work that Shauna does is really uh, exploring similar terrain as my research and practice as a teacher. And she did a really phenomenal job uh, taking some of the complex research on literacies and on multimodality and distilling it for 
classroom teachers. And that is very much my motivation as someone who has one foot in the classroom and one foot in uh, the research and, and world of theory is taking so many of the good ideas that exist in higher education spaces or in academic research and translating them for educators. So uh, her book is a masterclass in that. So I have really been enjoying that. And then personally, uh, I have been reading uh, Combining by Nora Bateson. Uh, Nora Bateson, um, I, she's one of those people that does so many things. I don't even really know what her official title or moniker is. She is a philosopher, poet, artist, documentarian, scholar, human. Um, and uh, speaking to the nature of her book, Combining, it's all about um, considering the interconnectedness of the way that we think, the way that we communicate, uh, the way that we make sense and make meaning in our world. And the, the point of her speaking about Combining is how all of these context that we try to isolate and strip down and, and, and put into these little component parts and boxes um, are are truly combined. Um, her grandfather, Gregory Bateson, was actually the one of the originators of cybernetics. So um, it, it really does seem to be like a, a intergenerational quest to understand, uh, you know, how we navigate the world um, and the interconnectedness of that world. So those are two books that I've been super into lately. Um, and for similar reasons, um, I think uh, they both align with my practice. I have a hard time separating my personal from my professional um, because for me, all of these things really bleed together. So those are, those are the two works that I've been immersed in lately. So combining would be like nonfiction. It's a nonfiction e-choice. Oh yes. Yeah. Or is yes, it like should, genre crossing? Yeah. Okay. I should have said, yes, it is. It is genre cost crossing in that it has, it has art, it has poetry, it has essays, um, it has all sorts of stuff. Um, and th that's very much, I think, a, a feature um, of this idea of the interconnectedness of these things, like for her art and uh, poetry and prose, all of these things can coexist. Um, and she's been working on this book for a really long time. So it, it's a really cool, thick, like it looked good on a coffee table. Nice. I, I am very intrigued. Um I, it's one thing I appreciated when I did my master's work is the opening of doors in the qualitative research world about mm. how many ways we can represent and explore yes. knowing. And um, once you step into that world, all of a sudden, it's like that old video Minesweeper game. Like you click on the one box and like all the other boxes open up. <laughs> that's so, yes, that's lovely. Right? And so, yeah, anytime you can kind of find folks that are doing it and, mm -hmm. and representing it, you know, like as a mentor text that yeah. we can say, no, no, this is a, a valid way to bring together our ideas, to represent our ideas. And look, this person did it for real, like in a published thing. Yes. Um, that's super cool. Do you, do you find you read mostly nonfiction Trevor, or does sometimes fiction like crawl into your to be read pile? I'll be honest. I I don't I don't know if this is just one of those weird, uh, you know, COVID pandemic things. But I used to exclusively read fiction. Um, I'll and I don't even if I were to put it into a genre, I would just say like lowbrow fantasy, sci-fi stuff was my jam. Um, but then considering my doc studies started at the same time as the pandemic, um, since then my brain has exclusively been on nonfiction. <laughs> Um, and I think that's because when I read fiction, it's like uh, The Wheel of Time is a series that I was obsessed with. Um, like I want like uh, brain consuming, like interconnected cinematic universes. And my brain only has so many neurons that can fire <laughs> at once. So I, I think that maybe I've 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 not been as much into fiction lately, um, but I do look forward to when this dissertation is done. Um, God willing, I survive it, uh, that uh, I can crack open a book um, of fiction again, because I, you know, that's where my heart lies. That's why I'm an English teacher. Um, but there's just, there's been, a, there's a lot of really good nonfiction out there, I guess, that I'm just vibing with lately. There's nothing wrong with any of that answer. Uh, I know that the last couple of chapters on the dissertation and preparation for defense seems like some kind of journey you'll never and never end yes. but you you too will survive trevor you too will <laughs> thank survive. you thank you rick i need that and we'll throw the wheel of time in there as you're on the fiction side when i had time this was what i wanted this is what you were reading yeah fantastic sure series. Come up. <laughs> my wife tells me that there's no the television series of it is uh, no there's not just not good enough yeah it was um, it was a little disappointing how is it ever 
I'm veering left here, but Rick, have you finally watched Lessons in Chemistry on TV yet? I have watched one episode and uh, yeah, it's a little different too. Uh, I haven't finished watching it. Uh, Chana finished reading the book. To our readers and to Trevor, this was one that was recommended uh, several podcasts ago. I ventured into it. It was definitely eye-opening as the thorn in uh, the bouquet of roses or as the male reader. Um, hmm. It's a fascinating read. A fascinating read to a time that I grew up in. You know, the 60s and, and uh, well, the late 50s and 60s and uh, the challenge of women in the workplace that's uh, discussed so openly and, and just brutal really uh, I, yeah, I would say it's, a, it's an adequate adaptation is not an ideal adaptation but I was like okay I don't hate that <laughs> which is saying something when you go from book to film right like the I, I feel like the bar is essentially low most of the time right yeah but all of us as English teachers have books that we love as as a, this is the book. And then here comes the movie. And there's always that if you've watched the movie first and then read the book, it's like, oh, look at there's all this much richer. And if you read the book and then watch the movie, how most often it feels like it's like, well, I guess they couldn't make all of it into a movie because the book was so mind blowing and expanding and and that sort of stuff. But. Then I feel the way about the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> you know, exactly. There it is. That's <laughs> that went a little bit into it. Okay. Yeah, hey, I'm sorry. That's fine. That's <laughs> sorry, fine. not sorry. I don't know. No, no. <laughs> it's part. Trevor's listened to a couple of episodes, and if you, if this is your first time with us, go back, listen to others. But yeah, we like to bounce some ideas off. Now, say, having said that, your dissertation research, as well as much of the work that you do in teaching practice, centers around multimodal literacies. Can you tell us what that is and why you think it is important for educators to consider in their work? Definitely. So multimodality, broadly speaking, is just uh, our ability to interpret, represent, and communicate ideas across different modes. So visually, orally haptically, um, spatially, um, et cetera. And literacies in the way that I conceptualize it based off the research that I'm exploring is uh, how we communicate, but how we communicate in a situated manner. So the way that people use these different communication modalities is different depending on the context that you are in. So, you know, a scientist might use visual communication in a different way than a, uh, an art historian. Um, but it's taking the time to first kind of open my students' minds and or the educators' minds who I'm working with to the potential affordances of communicating across these different modes um, and not just seeing them as, you know, uh, a cherry on top of a unit. I, I call like a lot of multimodal projects are seen as like, you know, the spoonful of fun to help the essay go down. Um, and I'm more so thinking about what are the ways that we can use these different modalities to construct knowledge um, and, and see them as complex in their own right, and even more complex once you begin layering them on. Um, and in addition to that, uh, that was sort of my my entry point into thinking about this, this work. Um, but then the more that I read about taking, you know, literacy in a singular sense, like our ability to decode text and to write, and instead seeing it as literacies, right? So what are the the tools of representation? What, what, are, what are the knowledge, the skills required to communicate across these different um, context. And, uh, you know, a, a good kind of analogy that I bring to bear to explain that is, you know, when I communicated on the soccer field with one of my students, you know, I'm doing that in a very different way than I would in a classroom, right? Like I would never, you know, on the soccer field, I might, you know, yell at a player to drive at their man in order to take them on and beat them and open up a scoring opportunity. Um, when my students are reading Toni Morrison, I'm not going to yell like, which literary <laughs> lens do you want to use? Right. It's just so communication isn't this uh, decontextualized thing. It exists within a, a social setting. And within that social setting, there are these cues and conventions that shape it. So kind of bringing those threads together, it's looking at how do people in different disciplines make sense of the world and communicate their understanding? Um, and how is that shaped by the communities that they're in? Um, and for me, 
I think about these communities in a really expansive way in that, um, you know, an academic discipline, a philosophy is is a is a, a community of practice that have these shared norms and conventions about, you know, what they see as as valid forms of knowledge and what their key concepts are and the ways that they ask questions. Um, and so does being a Swifty, you know, being a Taylor Swift fan comes with its own set of sort of discursive norms and conventions that Swifties adhere to in order to signal their membership of a community in order to interpret, you know, the layered meaning of the of the, the music that she produces. Um, and right now I have two articles under review and one is looking at a pretty like academic literary unit that I did with students um, where, you know, where they're doing, uh, they're publishing their own journal articles. We're reading literary theory. It's very like, you know, foofy highbrow. And then the other one is about uh, a group of students who I had who did a Taylor Swift podcast and not seeing those things as separate or dichotomous, but rather just different communities uh, or having my students explore how different communities, some being academic and some being, you know, part of their life world, how they interpret, represent and communicate ideas and meaning with each other. And it's just really cool to me that those things can be seen not as, you know, fun and silly versus serious, but rather just, you know, different communities and not putting in this sort of like vertical value judgment on which is better or, or worse. Um, and I find that the more I do that work, the more that my students recognize the value of more traditional conceptions of what, you know, English or literary studies is because instead of just being this list of rules that they have to follow because the teacher said so, they realize, oh, these are a community of people who have this way of engaging and the work that I do, you know, because I, t I take a lot of effort and time to frame it as such, is authentic and meaningful and looks like something that happens in the real world. So as you can tell, my nerd juices are flowing because that, that was a very long answer to your question, but that's sort of like the, I'd say the long and short of it, but the long and long of, of the work that I do. I, I like a good nerd answer. Um... As you were speaking, I, I I saw a little warning bubble pop up in my eyeballs, uh, not literally, uh, but um, this is not learning styles because we know that's mm. not a thing. Yes, correct. Um, and so, you know, can you talk maybe a little bit about how all of us are capable and all of us yes. experience all of the modes and it's not like... I'm haptic, right? Like it's not like yes. that um, because I think there might be some conflating going on and that's not the same thing at all. No, definitely that there is a lot of conflating going on and it is, um, I guess a, a bit of a, of a frustration of mine that oftentimes when discussing multimodal work, you know, you bringing that up, Charlie is great because a lot of people instantly go to, well, learning styles isn't a thing. Um, and I'm like, you're right, but that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> so learning styles is this idea that, you know, every uh, student has, and I think this is really important. They have a self-reported preference that they have, right? Or they have a self-conception of, of who they are as a learner in terms of how they process information best. Um, and that's, it's kind of complicated um, in that, you know, just whatever a student's stated preference is doesn't necessarily mean that like, you know, if a student says that they are better with print, but you're doing a geography lesson where they need to understand where a place is on a map, right? Writing that out in text is not actually going to be an optimal way for them to understand that. Um, and instead, uh, there's something called the modality effect that sort of speaks to different types of information or knowledge can be more easily or readily processed based on the mode that it's presented in. So instead of saying, oh, I'm a visual or a print or a haptic learner, um, you know, students might have preferences. And in some cases, those preferences do map onto um, uh, like what's what I'm looking for. Um, actually, how they process information. So like for me, for instance, I having ADHD, um, there are certain like forms of information. Like if I just see a huge text block, like I get overwhelmed. Right. And my brain can't process it. So you could frame that as like a learning style, but that doesn't mean that I don't learn well with print. It just means that there are different are different means of communication and there are different ways that, um, you know, I process information differently, but it's not necessarily mapped or correlated exactly with what I think my one learning style or preference is. Like we are all visual learners because um, we are sort of uh, hardwired to process more information when it's prevented visually and spatially as opposed to just with print. So yes, the, those two things, those things are often conflated. And it's like, there's a, um, 
a simplicity, I think, on the other side of complexity in that like learning styles are not a thing. Right. And that's like the like the simple part of it. And like the complex part of it is like, but people do process information differently based on their, you know, unique neuropsychological like makeup. Um, but that doesn't mean that a kid saying like, I don't want to look at pictures because I don't like them actually relates to cognitively how they process information. So it's it's definitely a fraught territory. Um, but it yes, learning styles as they're properly conceived are not not really a thing. Not really a thing. The, the... People, the world, uh, I think, recognizes, and here on the verge of, as I say to people all the time now, Trevor, I'm closer to 90 than I am to 30. <laughs> and uh, there's a birthday coming up here at the end of the week that says 65 on it. So um, the, the reason I mentioned that is as I started school, there was six, 16 millimeter projector, one in the school. Mm. You could book a movie to come in and run that, thread that through. But screens were the TV in a big stationary console on the floor at home. And we're black and white, actually, in my early days. I remember the first time I saw the Green Bay Packers on a color TV and and I thought, well, what's the big deal? It's white with a little bit of green trim. But the, 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 now the the introduction of so many different modalities. I mean, you could you just have so many more opportunities to put your eyeballs in front of a screen. I'm looking at three different screens right now as mm -hmm. we're recording this. Right, there's just so much different. Whereas before, early in my education, you had very few ways to put data into the eyeballs and precious few opportunities for those to be some form of a video as it were. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not as old as silent movies, but not far <laughs> off. And it's a whole, so it's a whole different piece for today's little ones. And I see this with, and you will, you've got Trevor has two young, young children. I have two five-year-old grandchildren and man, they they're learning uh, and goofing off on that iPad or tablet like crazy. That just wasn't there. Go draw, go scribble. Here's a book. That it, it's just very very different. Yeah, and, and I think <laughs> well to to that point, I think. Um... I've oscillated between being a techno optimist and a techno skeptic, despite my love of multimodality. Um, and I don't think I'll ever settle on one or the other, uh, because I think that the biggest challenge is what what are the what sort of broader social, political, economic situations are the people situated in who are experiencing and engaging with those technologies. Um, so that's always the struggle um, for me is is thinking about you know how do I feel about these different screens. Um, and, and I think that there can be some sort of like this naive assumption that these other older tactile forms have less validity than these newer digital forms. And for me, like this year I've started when my students are reading a book, they have a hard copy. Um, I don't, I usually don't give them a PDF unless they need one as, as a backup um, or they're, they're traveling or there's some other um, uh, potential concern because um, a lot of the research um, from uh, Marianne Wolf is a, is a, researcher who's been exploring this i'm sure wrote two books proust and the squid um and reader come home oh, reader come home yes um and just exploring like again not better or worse but reading on a screen is actually doing different things cognitively than when we are, are reading on paper so instead of assuming that you know tech or screens are better or the way or the future it's it's more of a question of, of context and purpose right if if i want my kids to dig and dive deep into a text i'm going to give them um, you know, a, a print version of the book. Um, but if I want my kids synthesizing and exploring, um, screens have more affordances to that. So it, it's the way that I think about it. Um, and it's become one of those things that I've said to the point where some of my colleagues are like, Trevor, we can make a bingo card of like catchphrases that you have. Um, one of them is affordances and constraints. And I'll talk about what are the affordances of this modality? And then what is the constraint of this modality? Um, instead of being like, it's always better or it's always worse. That's why I'm not anti-print at all. Like I teach English. 
I read books. I'm writing a, a very long dissertation with lots of words that no one will read. Um, but I value words. Um, and it's more so thinking about what are the affordances of print and what are the constraints of print? You know, I, I can't help but think of our good friends at UFLY and the insistence that students use tactile magnetic letters to manipulate the, their early discoveries of phonics, phonemic awareness, and building out words, uh, and not even pencils, because they, they don't want a pencil brought into play, because as soon as a pencil comes into play, so does the eraser. And so now does the whole fear of uh, lack of perfection, and I can't do. Um, but but getting your hands involved, yes, they have a nice little gizmo that allows the teacher to broad or to 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 present on screen the letters, and kids can build words with that. But that's not something you turn and give the kids and say, "Here, use this app and do this." And and that's I think the beauty of it, right? Um, and it says a little bit about how when we use tools we are needing to also use brain power to use those tools unless mm. we're functioning in a fluent space. So, you know, as we, you know, introduce an assignment where they're building a video of the TikTok esque, not saying they're going to be on TikTok. We're just going to make it look like it was on TikTok <laughs> um, or whatever it is. Maybe it's a, something visual like an infograph or, you know, there is an element of skill then that's involved in building that thing. And when we're talking about tiny learners who are learning to spell that pen to paper, pencil to paper task is using other brain power because they need to form the letters. And so if we want the sole brain power to be focused on the spelling of the word, then we take out the load of writing because in grade one, we're not in a fluent space around letter formation. It's kind of like typing in the other grades. Like if you have to spend all your time looking for a T on the keyboard, you're losing sight of the actual thinking that we're trying to communicate in the text. Yeah, and, and that deeper point of how the tools that we use shape the work that we produce, I think is one that is really entangled in literacy. Well, once you take that broader conception. Um, and one of the conversations that I have with a lot of folks um, is the fact that um, I am relatively platform agnostic in terms of the multimodal work that I do with students. Um, and I spent instead spend more time talking about like modalities. So, you know, whether you use Canva or Google Draw or Adobe Illustrator, you know, I don't really mind. How however, um, your understanding of of layout, your understanding of spacing, your understanding of color theory, your understanding of, you know, creating an aesthetic, all of these things can have leverage across these different platforms. Um, and then in addition to that, um, what are the different tastes or um, conventions that exist in different communities? Because what might be an effective use of layout and color and size and shape in one community might be different than one in another. Um, and I was actually just um, listening to uh, a video essay recently that talked about um, an aesthetic called Internet Ugly that was apparently pretty uh, prevalent in the early days of the Internet. And um, the like DIY nature of it actually became the desired aesthetic as opposed to a more like smoothed out corporate sort of like design. So, you know, you could look at uh, something that a student produced and be like, you know, this doesn't look very professional. Uh, well, if they were trying to target their audience towards a community who really valued that DIY internet ugly aesthetic, well, it would be correct. Um, so thinking about how like the tools that we use in the communities that we're situated in can really uh, shape, you know, what we perceive as being, you know, high quality or good um, in really, really interesting ways. That's, that is fascinating. And it's a fun conversation, one that certainly won't end. Trevor, I wonder, have you seen this book? Uh, it's called The Black Book of Colors. I have not. No. Oh, it's so, a gooder. I'm intrigued. Yeah. I mean, you need you, it. You, because you were just talking about, you know, the, the different modalities. So to our listeners, we've talked about this before on a, on a previous podcast. This is by Menina Cotton and Rosanna Fiera. And we'll put it in the description today as well. But as we're talking about this, Trevor, this book is has Braille and all of the pictures are printed in a manner. So if we open up to any particular one. 
and you mm. start to read the the passage you have just a few letters it's all black with white lettering very mindfully placed but there is an image that you that is embossed on the page along with the braille that goes with it so you feel the grass blades as that you awesome. are reading or the leaves or whatever the case may be this particular brown crunches under our his feet like autumn leaves sometimes it smells like chocolate and other times it stinks and so the writing is above the white lettering in braille and then over to the other page and you feel the leaves and it mm. i mean it's just an incredible it's a it's a approaching your mind in so many ways as a sighted person but it's yes. it's open to everybody and and I, what a beautiful illustration of how stepping outside of the normal communication conventions and norms that um you know most people move through and and being given a text like that that actually you know invite you to make sense and make meaning in a way different than the one that you are accustomed to if you're a you know neurotypical sighted <clears throat> person is a perfect example of that situated nature of communication right there are all of these assumptions about like the right way to communicate or the right way to design but that example right there is a perfect illustration of how that's entangled in a lot of assumptions that we make a lot of normative assumptions um about meaning making and about communication um and you know, the, the work that I am really interested in is uh, translating that and, and figuring out well, what are the implications for how we teach reading and writing? Because um, I think that there are a lot um, and there are there are ways that are really complicated and change. I think the discipline of English language arts or English studies as we know it. But but I also think that there is a place to acknowledge the fishbowl that English is in too complicated and to have body but also to help it or our students better see it. Um, and, you know, I bring in uh, a, a lot of like literary theory or literary criticism. And we talk about like how, the, how this particular community is constructing knowledge and giving kids access to that, not as a means to assimilate them into being little proto literary scholars, but just seeing how this community, you know, constructs meaning and explores these philosophical questions. Um, and also, you know, in the hope that for, you know, the I often joke, I'll say only 50% of you are going to go on to become English majors. Um, you know, in the the handful that do go on to do English in, in higher education, they could begin to complicate and and challenge um, you know, what the discipline is and how and how it looks. So I think that there is so much space for inviting in these other communities and these other the you know related ways of of interpreting, representing, and communicating ideas. But there's also a space to just get more clarity about what that looks like in English as a discipline too. I know we have another question like linked, but this is shooting my brain off in another direction. Um, and it's not just because I'm highly caffeinated by this point in the day. <laughs> so one of the conversations, and I'd be interested to know how you wrestle with this based on your practice, as well as in your research. Um, yeah. But, you know, this idea that text is anything that we mm. can basically consume through our senses, that we construct meaning from. And so with that definition of text, now it's not just standard print materials that we would see shelved in a library, um, but it expands exponentially um, yeah. because it's up to the user or the consumer of the text to create that meaning or that knowledge. And I love that question about how does this community construct knowledge or meaning from this text? Because in our new language arts curriculum land as text mm -hmm. is featured and that is a, a really interesting space for teachers to navigate because they haven't thought of gleaning messages which we all do whether we realize it or not from land from animals from the weather right and so when we disrupt this definition of text and expand it to its size that it is, how do we fit it into English class or into yeah. this assignment? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think it's a fantastic question. And um, it is something that is kind of emerging from 
my dissertation work, I think beyond the, the scope of the dissertation itself, but kind of the next step that I'm, I'm taking is looking at how to do that. Um, and uh, I lean really heavy on the work of Bill Cope and Mary Clancis. Um, they're my advisors. They were in the um, New, New London group who sort of created multiliteracies. And um, they have recently come out um, with a kind of a framework called transpositional uh, grammar. Um, and Ooh. it is so a theory of meaning for like all forms of meaning. Um, and it is amazing. And they actually do a quite a good job making it accessible. Um, but it, it is the sort of thing that like, you know, I wouldn't expect uh, a a teacher under the normal constraints that they are in to be able to read the two tomes that they wrote and, and glean something out of it. So I am trying to figure out what it looks like to translate some of that. And I just want to pull up here, um, kind of like if I were to, to really boil it down, um, and the, the Taylor Swift article that I mentioned is actually working on reformulating this for teachers. So when that comes out, um, I will hopefully, fingers crossed, um, I will I will share it with you. Um, but they talk about, at first, the fact that this word transposition is basically like uh, how meaning changes and evolves. So like, it's not that meaning is this set thing you just discover in the world, um, but it's also like there are problems with just seeing it as this thing that's so fluid we can never pin it down because then we're just sort of like meaning is impossible. So they see like transpositions as like patterns that are shifting and building on the work of multiliteracies, they're like, okay, these patterns of meaning that exist in the world could be image, text, speech, sound, body, object, or space. So like that's like any form of meaning, you know, any type of text that you can throw, you know, at a student or at a teacher can can fit within the bounds of those forms of meaning. So alongside that is like, okay, so like we, these are the different ways that meaning can be created. But what are the questions that as teachers and that as students, because I, I have my students engage with this framework, um, we can ask. So the first is, what is this about? So, you know, whether it's, it's, uh, uh, a poem or if it is a TikTok or if it is land, right? Like, like, what do we think, like, what is this referring to? Um, they call that reference. The next is agency. So who or what is doing this? Who is involved? Who, who is on the land now? Who was historically on the land, right? And, and how does that shape our conception of land? Or, you know, who is the audience consuming the Taylor Swift movie? You know, who is Taylor Swift as an artist and a creator? Um, next is structure. So how does this thing hang together, right? What is the structure of the land, the shape of it? How do the different, you know, uh, features, the flora, the fauna all sort of come together, um, in a poem, you know, it's iambic pentameter in art. It's, you know, uh, the, uh, arrangement of different images that are foregrounded or backgrounded, et cetera. Um, then is context when or where is this connected? Um, so thinking about, you know, if we're talking about land again, uh, very important, like what is surrounding that land um, in terms of context in more traditional conceptions of text, it's like, when, you know, uh, what was happening historically, socially, politically, culturally around the time a work was produced um, or and where was it produced and how does that shape the, the, the meaning that it has? And then lastly is interest. So this we can take a kind of a, a criticality or a, a critical stance and be like, you know, who's uh, who, uh, why, or or what's this for? And who's, you know, uh, I th that Latin phrase like cui bono, who benefits from the creation or interpretation of this? So, um, you know, it, not to go down a huge rabbit hole, but uh, that kind of framework is what I've been playing with a lot with my students. And I, I use terms that are a little bit more approachable. Like I don't say interest, I say like purpose. And I don't say reference, I say like content. So this is how I approach genre studies. My students will like, when engaging with a genre of text, uh, I'm about to do, um, in my next unit, I'm about to do video essays where students are um, essentially constructing an argument. And I want them to understand, you know, what does a good video essay look like? So they watch three video essays and um, they look at how the creator is using these different forms of meaning, right? Like how they are using text to like cite evidence or how they are using image to create like the aesthetic of the video essay. Um, but then they're also looking at like, you know, what is this video essay about? Who is creating this and who is this for? What is the structure of this video essay? What's the context or community that's being made for? Um, and then like, what is the purpose of it? So they go through that, they, they watch two or three video essays and that's how I get them to formulate an understanding of like, here's how people in this community create text. So I, I've used this approach with um, TikToks and I've used this approach with examples of literary criticism. So it's really flexible, really dynamic. Um, it probably was a lot to throw <laughs> on a podcast, but um, 
it, it I've been finding it really, I'm really excited about it because I think it offers a, a really boiled down, like this is based off of like, you know, six, 700 pages of their work and they've boiled it down to like two infographics, which is why big ups to them. And I'm trying to bring it even further to teachers and to students. And I did this with eighth graders. That's an important but, piece to add. And he did this with eighth graders. Now, yeah, it's Mary Kalantis and Bill Cope, correct? Mm -hmm. And they have a, a website, Works and Days, Transpositional Grammar. Like, there's a ton of information there, but this is uh, that, and we'll just drop the link to the website in. But this, this is, uh, yeah, it's a little bit to add to an hour-long conversation. We'll we'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> I get I, I get excited. It's uh but, it's I, I think that there's a lot of potential, but yeah, maybe it's a big thing to drop on you. <laughs> it's in the context of the conversation. But there are Venn diagrams in my uh, in, in my mind. You know, this work goes with this work, and this work goes with this work, which yes. leads me to to ask the question. Um, and you you started out by talking about who you are reading, and uh, Shauna Coppola is somebody that we're visiting with early in the new year to uh, record awesome. a podcast episode with uh, and, and highlight her book. Um, so she's one, but given that she's one and here you've talked about uh, the research of Mary and Bill that uh, is driving some of your uh, work. Um, but, uh, you know, when you were doing the lit review uh, for your dissertation, uh, that's a wonderful experience of, uh, I call it like skiing, a most complex mogul run where you think you know where you're going, but then you bump off of this mogul and you yep. get you're over here and you've got a whole nother collection of books so and true. articles and, and go. And that metaphor has worked for me. It drove me nuts because it took me forever to get that chapter done <laughs> because well, I'm, I'm not done yet, but look, I just found this one. And then that led me to here and here. <laughs> so with that in mind, I'm going to ask you this question when you're doing your lit review, who really stands out there? for their work in this field of multimodal literature and expression that you're working on? Um, well, that's a, a great question because what I realized was there are a few disciplines that are looking at multimodality from their particular angle. Um, and some of the challenge for my work is bringing together some of these different researchers and scholars who might be talking about multimodality, but just like in a way that is reflective of sort of their discipline. So J. Paul Mary is a great example of someone who has been doing work on multimodality for, for a long time, but he's coming from the ret comp world. Um, so I, I don't necessarily build on his work explicitly in my dissertation, but some of the stuff that he's talked about with remixing was really formative for me to understand what's happening when I ask kids to hybridize the sort of like, you know, TikToks or, or YouTube video essays or whatever that kind of digital work is with the kind of academic ideas that I'm exploring. Um, uh, Victor Fay Lim is a researcher who is in uh, Singapore, um, and he has a lot of academic research and books on multimodal literacies that are fantastic. And in, in Singapore, um, their conception of uh, multi-literacies is actually baked into like their sort of teacher requirement. So there's like a huge push there um, to like work with teachers on multi-literacies um, understandings of, of the discipline. Um, what was interesting was there was a bit of a hole in um, his research in that most of the stuff that he looks at with English is English learners. So he has multimodality across the curriculum, but because it's it's taking place in Singapore, um, there isn't like a, a literary studies version of his research, right? So that is, um, you know, a gap that I'm trying to plug a little bit by exploring, well, what does multimodality look like in the context of literary studies? Um, because most of the research that I've been exploring um, isn't really looking at that. Uh, and speaking of those moguls that you were um, surfing, Rick, that was one thing that I, I experienced too, where... I was going back and forth between if I wanted to focus on disciplinary literacy within English language arts or multimodality. And I kind of thought that I had to pick. Um, but the more that I dug in, the more that I explored, the more I realized that there were people who were looking um, at, you know, the role of multimodality in different disciplines. But literary studies was sort of the gap. Um, something else that's really exciting is I'm actually 
working alongside some of the people who are doing this research like in the field right now through the um, I'm a, a member of the writing and literacy special interest group for the uh, American Educational Research Association. Um, all the acronyms. <laughs> Whenever my, my wife will come down and see I'm on a call and when I like, she's, oh, who, who is it with? And I go through this like very long thing. So she kind of makes fun of me and I'm like, yes. So I know all the acronyms, but um, some of the the researchers um, who are, who are doing research uh, kind of not um, exactly like aligned with what I'm doing, but super similar are people like Scott Storm. Um, he is uh, a professor um, at Bowdoin. Um, Karis Jones, uh, she is a professor um, in the uh, SUNY network. Um, uh, I the, the Taylor Swift paper that I mentioned, uh, I'm co-authoring with uh, Brady Nash, who's at Miami of Ohio, and Sarah Jarasa, who is a professor at Clemson. Um, and it's just really cool to be on the kind of edge of this work. And, you know, instead of, it, there are plenty of people whose work that they built upon um, and who I also am building on who've been historically doing this work, but seeing as it is the sort of new intersection of fields, it's really exciting to like cite people that I'm like friends and colleagues with um, and that I'm, you know, co-researching with it, like, you know, getting a new, seeing that a paper that they write and, you know, being like, wow, like this is awesome. And just folding that into my dissertation. So um, that's, that's just a, a handful of the people. Um, uh, let me see. Uh, Chris Gutierrez at, uh, I think she's at UCLA now. Um, her research is fantastic too. So a lot of people. So when you take all that and, you know, the, this is good in that it, Hey, we're not just, we're, we're visiting with somebody that's got their hands deep in, the work and now a classroom teacher that's listening to this at any level okay what does that mean to them for consideration for how they might change yeah. their practice uh it, and maybe think of it in terms of okay division one division two division three division four which takes us up to graduating from high school but do you have some quick tidbits you don't have to rush but do you have some quick ideas Right, what this might look like for somebody in each of those divisions, maybe. Knowing your yeah, definitely. Junior, your your division three, division four, middle school, high school kind of. Yeah. And I know I've I've been nerding out um and going into all the theory, but I am very passionate about this. Nothing wrong with that at all, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, but but you know, the, it's super important that this is practitioner facing. Um and mm -hmm. I'll never forget reading the New London groups. Um, pedagogy of multiliteracies and being like, this is so cutting edge. This is so incredible. Like, I can't wait till this filters to practitioners. And then I saw the publication date of like 1996. And I was like, yeah, wow. I love it when there that happens when you're reading research. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So really nitty gritty. Um, and I have one pagers available on my website that can, that can help support this work. Um, introduce kids to, uh, I call like a minimum viable meta language for a mode. So it's like I have a one pager and it's like visuals, space, layout, color, um, texture, a few others that I'm probably forgetting. And, you know, put up on screen a graphic novel panel, a piece of art, really anything. And, and this could be a hook that starts off a unit where you have kids looking at art that's thematically exploring the same train as a novel. And once you've given kids that language, you can begin to have a conversation about what design choices is this artist making using, you know, our, our sort of shared little language. And I don't make them memorize it or do anything like that. It's just really does not take up a lot of time, but over these different layers of, I do the same thing. We'll listen to like a podcast clip and I'll give them a one pager of like, what are the like design choices available to podcasters? Um, and what has been cool is uh, the school that I'm at currently, I have a, I taught ninth, I teach ninth and 10th grade. Um, last year I, taught both this year I'm, I'm in 10 so i have some repeat students and what they've begun thinking about is oh wait authors make design choices when they are communicating something their use of a semicolon or an m dash or a you know a metaphor or simile that's a design choice and when you know uh, uh an an artist is making a design choice you know they are taking a color and they're using it at a particular like point or, you know, um, to, to shade a particular object within the painting. So it, it could be as, as simple and easy as, as listening to a podcast clip, displaying a piece of art, giving kids one of those one pagers and just asking, you know, what design choices are being made here? Um, I, so I think that's like a really great 
introduction to getting kids to begin to understand and to see multimodality, um, not just as like, oh, cool kids are going to do cool art video things because <laughs> hashtag digital technology. And like, you know, I've definitely my first year teacher, I, my first few years teaching, I definitely was the like pandering, cringy millennial teacher. And I still am in many ways. Um, but I realized that, you know, opening up that conversation um, then turns into opportunities when you have kids make, you know, a, a poster at the end of a, a unit. It's not just I made this cool, pretty thing. It's a conversation um, about what choice did you make? Why did you make it? How does it add meaning to something that you're doing? So I had kids design a cover for a short story that they wrote. And in addition to having a sort of author statement explaining whatever theme that they were constructing, they made a uh, cover for their book and they had to do a designer statement where they explained how they used line, shape, color, size to construct meaning for their cover. So their cover had to be a visual representation of the theme that they wrote in print. And in the age of AI that we are now all figuring out how to navigate, if you are a teacher who is super pressed for time, a kid can just prompt their way to a cool cover and then explain the design choices of it without needing you know, uh, to spend a lot of class time or get out the box of colored pencils. Again, there's a, there's a time and a place for those things. But if you are a task-saturated teacher, there are tools available to you and to your students that bringing this work in and having them create text in other modes doesn't take long. Another quick, really fast example is my, my students are blogging right now. Uh, we were, we're blogging our way through Toni Morrison's Sula. And um, for the art um, header image, uh, I asked them to use, we use Adobe Firefly, because um, as of now, they're the only ethically sourced visual um, generative AI. And it, we have like an account through our school. So kids will visually represent whatever theme they were of the blog that they were doing. Um, and in addition to, you know, creating their own kind of aesthetic, it's another layer of meaning um, that they are able to play around with. So those are just, I have a lot more, but um, those are just some really quick ways to infuse your class with these ideas that I've been discussing. Just before we go to the next question with Charlie, I'm glad that you said you have a lot more because Trevor and I are in conversation to set up a couple of sessions, possibly even whole day sessions in the spring uh, for teachers in Alberta and anybody else who chooses to register with us. But uh, so this episode, uh, this podcast definitely serves as a precursor uh, to those sessions that we look forward to having in the second semester, second half of the 23-24 school year. Charlie, you're next though. Well, I just want to point out to folks, if you haven't like been picking up some subtle nuancing in, in Trevor's conversation, um, every one of the examples he's talked about for his classroom features inductive teaching. So mm. he is sharing case studies or examples of specific um, text forms. And he's asking students to do their own analysis around features, um, elements, you know, what do these have in common? How are they different? What makes them great? In order to distill a sense of understanding, as opposed to saying, hey, kids, these are the five elements that every podcast has. Listen to these that prove me right. Um, and yep. so there's a great sense of student ownership in the tasks that, that Trevor is talking about. Um, and he's also, probably because of the book he co-authored, inherently talking about learning that is transferring from one context to yes. another. So we're talking about design choices in a visual piece. Oh, but wait a second, authors are designers too. So let's talk about those design choices. Um, and so if you're not familiar with that type of instruction, um, I just wanted to bring a little spotlight over on it um, because Trevor's just naturally being like, this is how things happen. And it's not always <laughs> the default thought process for, yeah. for many of us. Um, so Trevor, I, I was peeking through on your website. You've got some awesome resources on your site. Are there ones, oh, PS that are open access for teachers, which I got to say, and I don't know if it comes from a land of like, research or just like who you are as a human, but we have both had the pleasure of working with other educators who function in an open access space um, and just saying, you know what, 
I want to share this with you. So here you go. And I, so I appreciate that, Trevor. Thank you. Um, do you Happy have a favorite to. that you find? Like I totally fell down. Talk about rabbit holes. I was like, oh, Trevor's got a website. <laughs> oh, look at this resource. Oh, let's go look at some links about how to read advertisements. Thank you for that, Trevor. Because then I was on that guy's YouTube site for like way too long. <laughs> um, so do you have a favorite that you would be like, hey, friends, if you're going to go to my site, here's one that you should jump into. Yeah, let me see. Um, so the the genre awareness protocol was basically my attempt to distill that transpositional grammar framework that I was talking about earlier. So that is definitely, I think, a big one. Um, and I'll I'll you I'll talk about this in the context of that inductive teaching that you were just discussing, Charlie. And thank you for putting a spotlight on that because you know even though it has become just like such a foundational part of my teaching and something that does feel second nature. It wasn't at first. It is something that I've, I've kind of been able to grow into by working and collaborating with people who, who really center themselves in that work. Um, but what I, I've noticed is, and I've gone on both sides of this in terms of like wanting students to understand, you know, what it is to understand a, a genre to write a work. There have been times where I was like, here's what you do. Here is the way to do it. You know, not focused on on choice, not focused on an inductive, just like here are the rules, follow them. Um, and, you know, that leads to a really brittle understanding of whatever form or genre that they're that they're creating in, where whenever they encounter a text that doesn't fit that framework or the an ex, uh, a composition opportunity that doesn't align with the really narrow specifications I've laid out, their, their brains just are like, what's happening? I don't understand. I, don't, I can't actually write. I can it just write to this the one rules. thing. Exactly. And then on the flip side, so like my journey kind of started like that and they'd be like, okay, that doesn't work. And then I kind of went the other like hippie dippy direction where I was like, what does your heart tell you, man? Like whatever, <laughs> however you want to structure this piece, like it's an individual choice and who am I, right? And it just turns into mush. And the kids are like, they don't have a, a understanding, a repertoire of design choices that are available to them that they can just make. So I think that that's some, a fault failure that I had as a teacher, which is like assuming that because I give them freedom, they are aware of the choices available to them based on that genre or form they're composing in. So like that inductive piece was my aha moment. Um, and it was, you know, building on the work that I did with learning that transfers um, with, with Julie Stern, with Kayla Duncan, with Krista Ferraro, but also um, a lot of this stuff I encountered about mentor texts um, from Rebecca Odell and Ashley Marchetti and their work and me being like, oh, cool, let me take this mentor text thing, fuse it with the the inductive kind of stuff that I do with learning the transfers. So like it's giving kids, you know, really intentionally curated examples of it could of a different of how meaning is constructed in a different mode or um, of a different genre and giving them that genre, that framework of content structure design context purpose audience I was mentioning and having them like I'm guiding their attention to those features that are exist across all these examples but they build that meaning um so it's it's realizing that like it's putting examples in front of them that help them construct that meaning themselves it's not just saying go figure it out but it's also not telling them here is what, you know, should be in your brains, right? It's giving them the resources and setting the, the stage, if you will, or the conditions that they can construct their own understanding and their own uh, knowledge. So if you check out that genre awareness protocol on my site, and I, I, there are literally um, questions that I've written into each box that kids fill out. It's a Google Doc. Um, so if all this sounds very, like, overwhelming, like I said, I've given this to eighth graders and the prompts that I put in the box could be super helpful. So um, that is one. And I, I will just put it a quick, I, I, I hesitated to share this one because I think it's uh, it's more situated depending on what level learner that you're dealing with. I think the genre awareness protocol could work for all ages. I've been having a lot of fun working on the the literacy uh, literary literacies one pager and the teaching literary lenses one pager. So for anyone who's interested in getting their kids to Kind of dig into literary theory or different critical lenses. Um, uh, my kids have gotten super into that this year, um, and I I do pretty rigorous like student surveys, and they all without a fail say that like it's changing the way that they think about reading, and it's really helping them. So I won't go into depth on those, but because um, I think again those are maybe a little bit more limited audience wise, probably more secondary teachers. Um, but I've had a, a blast exploring that this year. Or when you say secondary teachers, it's that you're you're you would include grade nine in that conversation. Yeah. So so just as an example, last year, um, 
we read Chenoa Achebe is no longer at ease. Um, and I treated, I, I saw it as an opportunity to introduce students to like post-colonial theory, um, which, you know, if you are having kids read a book that is about colonialism, doesn't become an extra layer of confusing abstraction, but instead a, a tool set of terms, ideas, and thinkers that kids can use to interpret a book that's about colonialism. So I do some other stuff where I have kids maybe like read against the text and they'll apply a lens that the text wasn't really meant for. For ninth graders, you know, if you're reading like uh, Toni Morrison, you know, talking about race or gender and giving kids the theoretical language to do that isn't making it more complicated. It's clarifying it because it's like, oh, I have a language to talk about this thing. Um, I do a lot of stuff with like a, a psychoanalytic or a psychological lens that like any book my kids read, they now are like, oh, I can, I have the, these words that I can use and I have this like lens I can apply to think about, well, why would this character do this? Um, instead of just being like, well, that was dumb or that was weird, you know, why would they do that? It's now like, oh, you know, maybe this stems from something that happened in their childhood. Maybe this is some sort of like traumatic response to a situation that reflects something that happened to them, you know, in a prior situation. So um, yeah, I definitely think that with scaffolding, it's very doable. My kids did post-colonial podcast last year. I really loved them. Um, they were really cool to listen to. And, you know, these are our ninth graders. That, that is awesome. That really opens up uh, some things I find myself pondering. Like the more uh, your students are better able to consume what is on the TV when they're in the room, but they're not necessarily paying attention to. And a mom yes. or a dad might say, oh yeah, this is this. And they're like, wait a minute, let's, Let's listen to this again, because in light of what's being said here and what I've read here, it might actually mean this. You yeah. know, and it's no different. Uh, sit if I sit down with somebody who has never watched a football game, and people exist like this, uh, and they're watching the game, and I'm watching the game. We're not watching the same game in reality. Mm. Not after coaching sixty football teams in my life. Right. Uh, and so then it's a matter of how much would they, how much can I share and how can I share that so that they see something for the first time in yeah. a play. Right. Yeah. And there's no difference in that example to what you're doing to open eyes and minds and making things less scary. People get frustrated and anxious even you know when we look at truth and reconciliation here in Canada and and in the states as we talked as we started out right it's it's a lack of understanding the more yeah. we read the more we understand them over my shoulder here's valley of the bird tale uh, you know read comprehend think now see in an entirely different way not scary doesn't yeah. mean you're going to change into something if you read this it doesn't mean you're going to go now become something you're not necessarily don't be afraid you're just going to understand those who are in those shoes yeah no and and to, to that point that when i introduce kids whether it's to a new mode or uh to that those literary lenses I have them go analyze a piece of media that they love first. Um, I call them like literary lightning talks where kids like apply it to Breaking Bad or to a Taylor Swift song or to, you know, their favorite hip hop artist or to um, uh, a Instagram account that they follow. Um, and without fail, they're like, Mr. Elio, you've ruined Netflix. You've ruined TikTok because I'm always just, what are the design choices being made? Like, you know, what's motivating this character? Like what's, you know, how can I put my psychoanalyst hat on and, and start peeling back? Why are they behaving in this way? So I, I always like rub my hands together and I'm like, yes, yes. When they say that, because that's your point. It, it can be, um, it's, it can be transformative um, to see and understand, but like, it's not, it's the opposite of indoctrination because you are exposing them to different alternative ways of thinking that allow them to figure out which of these aligns best with my values. And instead of just, you know, closing their eyes, it's opening their eyes, but then they can be in, become informed consumers. And the more that we, we restrain their ability to make intentional choices um, and to, to read and see and understand the world, um, 
the easier it is for them to be sus um, susceptible to, you know, manipulation or ideological c control. Like, they need to understand how those things work. Isn't that the truth? You look at the matrix of a YouTube page and you come to your home screen and there's 16 possible videos there and your students are able to look at that and look at the titles and go, ah, that's not really that. That's not really mm -hmm. that. That's, mm -hmm. You're not going to see that image ever. Uh, but they want you to click on it because, and, and their mom and dad yeah. might be sitting there kind of going, huh? Oh, okay. Well, Trevor, I don't have any more questions for you today. I know that this has been a great conversation and uh, we look forward to, as I say, hosting you for a, a session for teachers to take a little bit deeper dive into into the work uh, in the spring. Uh, that will appear on our registration site uh, in the new year. Um, but we want to thank you for this. Uh, it, as we're recording it, uh, it's Tuesday, December 19th, and we're headed into the Christmas holiday season break. Uh, I want to wish you and your family all the best for the season and uh, for the new year. And thank you very much for this time. Charlie? Awesome, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, I know your Christmas will be warmer, perhaps, than ours, although we don't have a lot <laughs> yeah, of snow slightly. here. So. so, right, I'm currently visiting my parents in Virginia, but I live in Fairfield, Connecticut. It's like an hour outside of uh, New York City. So it'll be slightly warmer, but but not too much. But yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. I really had a blast. I look forward to uh, sharing and connecting with uh, you and your teachers in the spring and, and really digging into what this looks like for practitioners. And with that, we'll close. Thank you, listeners. We look forward to seeing you again in the new year. Until then, stay safe, stay awesome. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>